Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, Congresswoman Yvette Clark with the latest on family separations at the border, the continued saga of New York's Public Housing Authority, plus next month's Black Lesbian Conference. Hi, welcome to the show. I'm Brian Vine, sitting in for Ashley Ford. We'll be back tomorrow. I'm joined in the studio by our producer, Ross Tuttle. Hello, hey, Ross. Brian. How are you? I'm doing well today. Happy Monday. Thank you. Interesting weekend this weekend with Always. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who was actually, I think it was on Friday, where she yeah. was told to, to get out of a restaurant in Nicely Virginia. Nicely told to get Nicely out. Nicely told to get out. And I think her bill was comped. Well, which must I, be nice. Which, right. <laughs> that kind of created an uproar had me thinking a lot about this. Like, is this an appropriate type of, of protest that now we're engaging in? And to what end, and, and does it help? Well, for every uh, Pence shouted down at Hamilton, we had uh, another of the cabinet members shouted out of a Mexican restaurant. Right. There's been all Here's kinds of creative ways that people are voicing their opinions, but it seems like one column and one in the other. Like, for every person who's gay who doesn't get their wedding cake made, there's a GOP person who doesn't get to enjoy a taco. Kristen Nielsen, who is the director of Homeland Homeland Security, Security, she had just finished talking about continuing Trump's line of this infestation of immigrants coming across Mm -hmm. the border, and then she chooses to go dine at a Mexican restaurant. It feels very trolly. Yeah, well, it's like, what are the optics of that? So you're saying it's intentional. She's goading us into being angry. I do. It plays well for them. It's red meat for the base. The uh-huh. optics are good. It makes them, like, victimized. And it really plays well for those folks who might write a check and say, oh, yeah, this is what they do. You're equating that to Melania Trump wearing, before visiting these kids, yeah. and, and the people who are housing these kids in detention centers right, yeah. wearing a jacket that says, I really don't care. Do you? Yeah. And she's just trying to, like, make us enraged. But, like, number one, how many $30 jackets does that woman have in her closet that she wears on 90-degree days going down to Texas? It's kind of redonk. So it is. (laughs) Like, it it has to be by design. There's no accidents. My mind is blown by that. Yeah, well, Uh, we're talking about it and not, like, focusing on his goofiness. I got a million memes and, like, tum thumb text about it. So, of course, like, it's just made to spin us around. Well, so it's kind of, it's two different subjects, right? Politico had an interesting article saying, like, the left is losing its cool. Are we losing our cool? Are we, you know, starting to break down? Has this latest event separating the families, has this really just gotten everybody's hair on fire? Mm-hmm. And now acting in ways where we just can't contain ourselves. And we see somebody from this administration who stands up yeah. and backs this and tries to explain it and apologize for it, rationalize it, whatever they do, yeah. and we've just got, got we explode. It Dessert. all started when Whoopi and Joy walked off the set of The View when Bill O'Reilly was there spewing garbage. But there is just a general lack of civility and, like, a level of discourse that is just gone down the toilet. Like, it really has. And Trump is getting a lot of the blame for that. People who are even saying, yeah, it's not okay to tell Sarah Huckabee Sanders she can't eat there. But Trump has brought us to this level. I'm saying, if they can tell you they don't want to make your wedding cake or you can't get birth control because this is our religious practice or we won't cover your life partner because of your life choices... I cry for you because your family got comp dinner or you didn't get to order nachos. Yeah, we shouldn't be too concerned. Yeah, give me a break. So, of course, all politics is local. And on Tuesday, it's the first day that Brooklyn gets to act. 
electorally at least, on trying to fix things in Washington. There are primaries in a few districts now. Yeah, a few in Brooklyn. Well, there's a Republican race that's been getting a lot of attention in yeah. Staten Island, South Brooklyn, Dan Donovan and Michael Grimm. They're both fighting for that Trump mantle, which I wonder how that'll serve them in the general election. I guess we'll have to see. Mm. There's a Democratic race in that district as well in the primary. Jarrett Murphy's City Limits will be on to talk about the results, but City Limits has a good little primer yeah. on, on that race. Closer to our geographic location is... Yvette Clark. Mm -hmm, The young upstart. Right, against the young upstart, Adam Bogadeco, who was on the show. We're going to be talking to Yvette Clark in a minute. And the Carolyn Maloney race with another upstart, Siraj Patel, who was on the show. You might have seen him on Tinder somewhere. (laughs) Not for love, but for your vote. Yeah, exactly. He said it was identified as such. It was not trying to get people in under false pretenses. Yeah, it was this um, false dating app that yeah. was trying to engage people and say, hey, come out and you know, make this kind of connection, it's a connection 90s. with your candidate. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. if you want new things, you got to try different methods. So, exactly. like, engage young people where they live. That's what he's just thinking. He says it's working. Yeah. And, you know, and that's, I think, what this race is about a little bit. New blood, a little bit of a youthful injection. He counts himself as the millennial candidate. So we will see how it goes. Yeah, we will. Putting the races aside for a second, we're going to be speaking with Yvette Clark, who's going to give us an update on the situation at the border with the family separations and what the congressional response is, if anything. Joining us on the line right now, we're happy to have Brooklyn Congresswoman Yvette Clark representing the 9th District. Thank you so much for joining us this day. Thank you for having me, Brian. It's great to be with you. Thank you. So right off the top, I was watching the Sunday shows and lots of representatives were frustrated by their lack of admittance into some of these facilities where young people are kept. So we just want to get an update from you. What have you heard? Uh, Can you further the story at all for the folks back in the district? Well, I have been keeping tabs on on my colleagues, been in conversations, particularly with Congressman Jeffries, Mm -hmm. who was given admittance to one of the facilities in New Jersey, where some parents were being held, uh, there's a great sense of frustration Mm -hmm. coming from our communities about the lack of transparency with respect to the zero-tolerance policy and what appears to be a lack of a really flushed-out policy for reunification of children with their parents. And so we're extremely, extremely concerned, and I'm hearing it everywhere from all of my colleagues, including Republicans who are now finally finding the courage to speak out about the extreme callousness of the Trump administration and the total disregard of human rights of these families. Congresswoman, the latest we heard was that the Trump administration was saying if these individuals who are being detained, the parents, would uh, willingly would self-deport, they could be reunified with their children if they wanted to be. Do you know now, is that the condition upon which they will be reunified, or will there be any kind of reunification if they well, choose we, to stay here and seek are, asylum? We are pushing for the immigration system to do its job, and part of that job is giving due process to these families. If we allow this to become the status quo, our 
we will have found that our immigration system has broken down. We will have violated a number of human rights conditions that we have been subjected to as a member of the U.N. I mean, there are just too many implications for not following the law. These families are coming here seeking asylum. They are refugees. And there is a whole part of our immigration bureaucracy that's dedicated just to addressing and assessing asylum cases. So I would not, and I know that my colleagues also would not allow that to be the status quo for how we address this crisis on our border. So you're ready to start calling this a refugee crisis instead of simply a matter of immigration policy? It is a refugee crisis, and that is, that is just one component mm -hmm. of immigration. These individuals overwhelmingly are coming from places like El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. They're not coming from Mexico. As a matter of fact, if you look at border crossings, for Mexicans into the United States, they have been declining precipitously over the past few years. So what we are witnessing right now is strictly an anti-immigrant fervor coming out of the White House with no real justification for it. The individuals who are showing up with their families right now are fleeing uh, violence and persecution. So we know what that means for other parts of the world. Uh, we are just witnessing it within our own hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And our, we will be judged by our response to this. And so we have got to step up and do our jobs in Congress, as we cannot condemn other nations that do not let those flee violence and persecution into their borders and then stand against it here in the United States. And speaking of Congress members doing their jobs, is there anything on the plate uh, for the House of Representatives, any bills that are being proposed, discussed, passed along to the president that could deal with some of these issues? Unfortunately, our president keeps sending signals that he will veto any immigration legislation that doesn't come before him with fully funding a wall. And that's one area that Democrats are not willing to cross. Taxpayer dollars should be sent, spent on reuniting these families right now, not building a wall and uh, financially enriching, you know, contractors so, who will be responsible for that. I'm sorry to interrupt, but just staying with Congress for a second, we're moments away from midterms, and I wonder what you think it's going to take to actually flip the balance of power in Congress to swing well, back in the way of the Dems. everyone coming out to vote, not being confused, not being disillusioned or uh, being cynical. It is time for us to recognize that if we don't step up to vote in this midterm election, this freight train of despicable behavior will come barreling down on us because it will embolden Donald Trump to continue this behavior, the breaking of the norms that really define us as a democracy. And so this is a very critical, if we don't feel an existential threat coming from the presidency right now, then we're not human. Well, you've heard it right there, folks. Get out and vote in that midterm tomorrow. We thank you, Congresswoman Yvette Clark, for your time, and we'll see you at the polls. 
Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank, Thank you. you. Coming up, fury at the latest revelations of NYCHA's lies. Don't go away. This month, federal prosecutors delivered a report based on their investigation of the New York City Housing Authority, NYCHA, and it wasn't pretty. They accused the authority of covering up its actions and actually training employees on how to mislead inspectors and file false reports. Now, NYCHA properties are home to nearly half a million poor and working families residents in the city, and these actions left conditions that have endangered tenants for years. To talk to us about the report and the conditions in public housing, we have longtime resident and community organizer Karen Blondell. Thanks for joining us, Ms. Blondell. Thank you. Also, Monica Underwood from Fury, Families United for Racial and Economic Equality. Thanks for coming to the show. Thank you. So I spoke about that report just a few seconds ago. Is it as the report said, from your experience? Yes, it is as bad as it says. And actually, when I first read the report, mm -hmm. I felt vindicated. Mm -hmm. I felt validated because I had been complaining for a long time about repairs and about preventive maintenance in the buildings where I live, which is the Red Hook houses. So, Ms. Underwood, was there anything that was left out? Did you look at the report and say, oh, and? <laughs> You know, I'm going to piggyback on Karen a little bit. I mm -hmm. felt good that they're going to do this investigation because, you know, the the problems that we have in NYCHA are, like, longstanding. It's yeah. like, we, we every every time, we, everywhere you turn, we're like, we're having, like, no water or the water's cold. It's always a constant problem. So it's a lot of problems. And then it's the physical. It's the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. A lot of things need fixing. So it's a big problem. So. so sitting here right now, I'm looking at about 60 years worth of stakeholder status in the community. So just from your perspectives collectively, are things now the worst that they've ever been? Can you think of a time where things were better or it looked like a turnaround was coming? Or just from your experience, what is it like now versus any other time that you've been in the community? I've never seen thing as, things as bad as they have been um, in the last couple of years in NYCHA. I moved into Red Hook Houses in 1982 as an emancipated minor, and while the neighborhood was blighted, at least the inside and the infrastructure was pretty good back then. Since that time, the infrastructure has crumbled. We have a lot of issues with water in our waste traps. No one's jetting out the waste traps or even do an investigation on the risers in the walls that deliver our hot and cold water and our steam. So, Ms. Underwood, looking at FURY, Families United for Racial and Economic Equality, that yeah. seems to line up right with the mission of what we're talking about today. Well, it kind of fits into what we're fighting for, environmental justice, preserving public housing. And, you know, we're fighting for low-income low people and affordable housing, which is NYCHA, which is supposed to be NYCHA. Yeah. So all that lines up with our work, you know, with our fight, and we will continue to fight. So a few years ago, there was a lot of hoopla surrounding NYCHA's new head, and Shola Latoya came in. She went on a listening tour. She was everywhere, seemingly talking to everybody. Now she's stepping down. The governor's office is creating a monitor. We've got these consent decrees. So. 
do you think that we're due for the turnaround? Are we at the bottom now and we got to start building? I'm going to say it like uh, Patterson, Governor, our former Governor Patterson said recently. Yeah, yeah, well, he was on television <laughs> one Sunday a couple of weeks ago, yeah. and he said, there's a problem when you keep changing mm -hmm. the head of an organization, but right under the head, you have Everybody the same people there. for 30, 40 years. This is going to require a restructuring all the way down to the ground level. Yeah. This situation, as it unfolded with the evidence from the federal government, right. stated that even the groundskeepers and maintenance workers were in it because they were also turning off the water in the buildings when the inspectors showed up, mm -hmm. as well as doing other things. So this has to be a change from the grassroots and from the ground all the way to the top of NYCHA mm -hmm. in order for it to be effective. So what would that look like, Ms. Underwood, if we say, oh, you keep getting rid of the head of, but everybody's still up in there who's been working there for the last 30 years. So what would it look like if it was made in the image that you think would get things moving at NYCHA? First of all, they need to hire more employees, you mm -hmm. know. They, their maintenance crews are very small, right. and a lot of them are not trained in the jobs. Yeah. Now, as far as the head of NYCHA, well, everyone that's been coming to NYCHA, it's like the previous people before um, Shola, not one word, not one peep, nothing. Okay. She did come in. She mm -hmm. came in a, out of a lot of heat. Yeah. But if a problem was presented, it was addressed. I can't say that about her. Mm -hmm. Now, we have a new person in, uh, you know, not one word, silence. Mm -hmm. You know, and they have to be hands-on. They really do. They have to be hands-on. People have a lot of problems. You know, this is what they were there for. So does it give you any uh, hope now that there's oversight or the governor stepping in? Do you feel like things are on the right track, at least? Not yet. I read the complaint and the consent decree, but there was also opposition from the Council of Presidents in regards to the consent decree. Okay. And in all fairness, I had to read that as well, and I'll actually leave you a copy. And they're complaining that the consent decree lacks resident representation. Mm -hmm. I looked into it, and it does lack representation from the residents. Mm -hmm. NYCHA is given too much control in this process. It does show that NYCHA, even being a bad actor in the past, is still being allowed the chance to remedy the situation without resident input. It also shows that NYCHA is being policing itself. Yeah. That has not worked, and it won't work. Uh, we need to have the resident councils become responsible to creating resident modernization and repair committees. Uh, we need to get information from our resident council in regards to TPA funds and in regards to what the residents can learn to do for themselves. Mm -hmm. When HUD first was created, it was created as a mechanism to move people from low income into self-sufficiency. Right. And NYCHA at times has hindered that in regards to its resident associations not having standards. I can't even get the bylaws and an, a financial report out of the resident leaders. So for them to call and ask for transparency from NYCHA... When they're not giving it to their fellow They're not giving it to the residents. Yeah. And I also have a huge problem with anyone being in office for 30, 40, 50 years. We just have too much talent in the city to have the same people in office that long.
So right now, what's happening to raise awareness and get folks organized around these issues? What we do is we do a lot of workshops. Mm -hmm. We come to inform the residents. And the residents should be a big part of it because they want to know what's going on. They do. You know, they, they have their own ideas. Yeah. So it shouldn't, like she said, it shouldn't just be like one leadership. It should be all the residents should be involved. And, um, you know, that's what we, we do. We educate them. Yes. We do a series of workshops and we educate the residents. Well, speaking of and education. For their fight. Mm hmm and the fight. Mm -hmm. I know you've been working with environmental justice issues yes. and mm -hmm. turning the ties to organization. And when people look at these headlines or they see the mayor or the governor standing there, they think of it as another political thing. But I wondered if you could tell us something that would just connect with folks on a human level about what it's like to have just years of benign neglect and be sitting out there on the front lines waiting for the next thing to come in and demolish where you live. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you this, what don't kill you make you stronger. Here you are. So here we are. We're stronger because I was afforded an opportunity to work for the Fifth Avenue Committee as an organizer under Turning the Tide, which is an environmental justice initiative for public housing residents in Wyckoff, Warren, uh, Gowanus, and the Red Hook Houses. Still Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. That's right. And so we were able to complete a eight-month curriculum talking about indoor healthy environments, bringing a focus on the mold and the lead issues that are in public housing, as well as talk about the Gowanus Canal cleanup, which is also a block away from the Gowanus and Wyckoff developments. And part of that is actually siting a 8 million gallon underground tank to hold sewage during rain events. We've been educating the residents on all of these issues, as well as advocating for them for repairs, for heat, right. for hot water, and for a emergency preparedness plan that works for each community. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it didn't kill you, it certainly made you stronger. How can some like-minded folks get in touch with you guys to make the coalition even tougher? Okay, so you can get in touch with us by going on the Fifth Avenue Committee's website, where you'll see information about FURY, Families United for Racial and Economic Equality. Mm -hmm. You'll also find information and some of the workshops that we've developed for Turning the Tide, as well as I'm now wearing a new shirt for our new venture, which we have been working together as a coalition on, right. uh, waiting for the framework because Gowanus is one of the areas slated to be rezoned. So we have a group called the Gowanus Neighborhood Coalition for Justice that was also initiated by the Fifth Avenue Committee, and we advocate for each other and for the entire community. And what we're really asking for, we did get commitments from the city planners um, in their framework, right. but we're asking for upfront commitments. We want to yeah. see them put their money where their mouth is. Well, if there's anybody that's going to hold them to it, it's, it's going to be Karen Blondell, yeah. Monica Underwood. And I, I just thank want, you for being I, I here. I just wanted to say, if, yeah. before we can cut off, also, they can also go on um, social media for Fury, because yes. we're on social media. Thank all you. on board. Thank you. Appreciate it.
The Black Lesbian Conference was established to provide space dedicated to the unique issues facing black or African-descended lesbians. Organized by Beyond Bold and Brave, they seek to support and produce programs, projects, and events that responsibly and truthfully affirm and represent their lives, work, and identity. The event's going to take place at Barnard College at the end of July, and this year's theme is Work as Memoir. And to tell us more about it, we're joined by the founder of Beyond Bold and Brave, Elise Emery. Welcome to 112BK. Thank you. So happy you could join us today. Now, we talked before in about 2016. Correct. So two years later, what can we expect of the conference? Quite a bit, actually. Um, we have expanded the number of presentations we're doing this year, which is awesome. We are expecting more attendees than we did last time. We, as you remember, we sold out very quickly yeah, you did. for the first one. We're almost there now, so that to look forward to. We have some. We have a wonderful, wonderful keynote presenter, Cheryl Dunye, who is an out black lesbian filmmaker and TV episode director. She's coming to us from California to tell us what she thinks work as memoir is. We've got Jewel Gomez, author of The Guild of Stories and wonderful, wonderful advocate. She is also a part of our luncheon panel that's also going to talk about work as memoir. Yeah. And that's just the start of it. There are a host of other things as well. So the larger heading this year is Reclaiming and Owning Our Work. And you just referenced work as memoir. Mm -hmm. So Tell us what that is in your view. How do you frame work as memoir and reclaiming our work? Well, actually, work as memoir came first. Okay. That's the larger title. Gotcha. Reclaiming our work was one of the, if you will, sub-themes. As myself and our team thought about a theme, mm -hmm. we thought about what we did last time with the theme of the evolution of our community. We talked about how we've changed, how our work has changed, and our... Uh, lives have changed, or some may or may not. Yeah. So we felt, our team felt, that the next logical step was to talk about what is work mm. and what is work's importance. As we thought about it deeper, we recognized that many of us, not just black African-descendant lesbians, but individuals as well, we approach work as something that can be mundane and very ordinary. But what we want to emphasize is that everyone who work, everyone who's on the earth, mm -hmm. whether you get up in the morning, would have you, we're working. And that is a footprint. That is the start and the continuation of a memoir of what it is that we did with our lives and how it... Um, how our lives were shaped by that work, our experiences and such, and how it actually impacts larger communities as well. And it sort of reframes this idea of memoir as not something that's a backward-facing thing. Correct. It brings it into the now and projects us into the future. That is correct. It also brings it to a very personal level. Mm. Often we think of memoir as someone sitting down and writing this large tome yeah. about how their life has changed and it's in volumes like Proust or something. <laughs> but we really wanted to bring it to the individual sisters to say this is is yours. You can claim that you are integral into what is going on in our work, mm -hmm. in our world, in larger society, in the multiverse at all times. You are important. You are vital yeah. and contributor to that. So what are the sisters' 
talking about contributing? Like, what are they choosing to trumpet? Like, you talked about this idea of, like, work can seem like a mundane thing or something Mm -hmm. that you do. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it takes someone to say, hey, I appreciate you, and look at what you did. So what are these women standing up and saying, this is my work, this is what I'm proud of, this is what I'm staking a claim in my contribution? There's so many of us, Mm -hmm. and our stories and our work is varied. For our conference, for the presenters that we have, we have over 20, um, combination of about 24 presenters in total. Mm -hmm. Some of the things that they are standing up and saying, this is my work, uh, is we have a sister coming from Albany, New York, who's talking about her work with formerly incarcerated LGBTQ women, which you rarely hear anything about, but the sister has dedicated her life to that. We have two sisters also from Albany talking about butch femme sexervations, if you will. What does that mean to be butch and femme and have these conversations about sex and identity and all those things? We also have a wonderful group of elders from an organization called Griot Circle right here in Brooklyn. Down the street. Yes, indeed. We love them. They are going to talk about the legacy of uh, people of color elders, LGBTQ elders and such, and what has their trajectory been and the work that they've done individually as collective. So that's just a start. I mean, yeah. there's, there's so many other topics and along the variety of uh, ideas and such, but all related to what is the work that we're doing. One sister who's an artist, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. she just got her official green card and status here, and she's from Uganda. So what has that been like? What has her experience been like coming from Uganda, which is a country that has historically just oppressed folks of the LGBTQ community. So for her to come and to be an emerging artist, sculptor, to tell her story with us, that's very, very profound. So you came here to sort of lift the curtain a little bit on what's going to be happening at the end of July. Yes, yes. And you left me with more questions than answers. (laughs) Your answers were great, and you sparked so many things. Mm. But the number one question is, where do I need to be in July, and how can I get myself a ticket? You need to be at Barnard College. Beyondboldandbrave.org is the website. There you will find out how to register. You can also, if you wish to become a donor or a sponsor, you can still do that. There's still time for that. For those who are interested in coming, like if you want to come, register now because spaces are filling up very, very quickly. We are on the tail end of that. Um, and it's very cost-friendly, and it's local New York, Barnard College, our wonderful supporters, if I may, the New York Women's Foundation, who is this year our conference co-presenter. We also have the Estrella Lesbian Foundation for Justice, Callan Lord Community Health Center, the LGBTQ Center, National LGBTQ Task Force, Mm -hmm. on and on, the wonderful folks at St. Mary's Adult Day Health Center, SAGE, a new sponsor. We are happy to have them come on board just, again, in support of us and the multitudes of outreach partners here locally that are just putting the word out. We love them and couldn't do it without them. So Phenomenal. Come join us. Good folks oh, up there Oh, we do. It's a blessing. Well, it's a we blessing. definitely appreciate all the work that you do Thank all you. year. And Thank we'll you. be happy to come to your celebration of work at the Black Lesbian Conference this Thank year. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's the show for today. Tomorrow we'll be back to talk about a Brooklyn mother of two and a domestic violence survivor who's now facing deportation. Hope you can join us. Bye now. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford. 
and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. Also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hagasek and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. And our executive producers are Assis Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>